Welcome to the Always On podcast. I'm your host, Duncan McPherson. On this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, which are working fee-for-service professionals at a very high level, to always be working on their business and on themselves personally and professionally. Today's podcast, I had a great conversation with Chris Jepson, who heads up the practice management department at First Trust. He's also the co-author of the Advisor Playbook and one of the most respected thought leaders in the financial services space. And we dove into not only the whole premise of working on your business, but also what separates the best from the rest, especially in light of what's gone on in the last 18 months. If you like this podcast, please like and share. And we would love to hear any feedback. Hopefully you'll look forward to the future themes that we cover in upcoming podcasts as well. Chris, you play at an unrivaled level for many reasons, one of which is you're surrounded by probably the most elite wholesaling team in the financial services space. They put you in front of terrific audiences. Thank you very much for joining us here today on Always On. Hey, I'm super excited to be here. Anytime we get together, it's just the thoughts just flow. So I'm excited to be able to share with everybody what's been going on. You're right about the First Trust wholesaling team. They have been an invaluable resource for providing me the content that I share with, with advisors around the country. Let's make no mistake, as far as thought leader, maybe thought regurgitator, probably a lead <laughs> thought regurgitator. That's about it. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Dr. Yeah, well, aggregator first, right? So you're exposed to so much information. You sift through it, what works, what doesn't. It's interesting, Chris. I mean, here we are. It's uh, September 2021. You and I haven't been in the same room physically for 18 months, although we've known each other now for quite a while. We co-wrote the advisor playbook, which has been very well received. But uh, to your point, we've had several uh, interactions, sharing best practices. I know you're a serious student and always on means work on yourself personally and professionally, work on your business in terms of professional contrast, enterprise value, client experience. What I'm curious to kick this off with is what has this last 18 months revealed for you in terms of what the best financial advisors, how, what makes them tick, what separates them from the rest? I'm curious about that. Well, it's been revealing. I guess that would probably be the best word to describe the last 18 months or, or more even now. And who knows what, what will come. There has been a common characteristic that has persisted, Duncan, that I've witnessed. I think you would say probably the same thing over the last 20, I don't know, 23, 25 years, I guess, now following top teams and top solo practitioners and some family offices, really the whole gambit, right? What is it that, that makes them unique? Well, the last 18 months has shown something to me. It's shown me that the first 20 years in their business was no fluke. Right. You're like, well, the market's been really good. Everybody's done well the last 10, 10 months coming into the pandemic. There was no excuse not to have done well. But the last 18 months we've seen and I'm glad that it's happening because I would have would have thought that this would happen is this dispersion of really a separation from the elite, from the average or the elite from the select. Right. Because these are the these are the advisors that when things got a little different, they were quick to adapt. So I guess you were to ask me what's been most revealing to me is their ability to adapt to current circumstances 
and embrace the changes that were being thrown at them rather than kind of fight them off and, and hold and hope for some kind of return to normalcy. Uh, that isn't what I saw. And if you think about it, it's probably the same with with everything, right? It's not just financial services. We, we were just discussing I, the Tour de France before we went live. And, you know, they're all like in clumps, right? I mean, everybody's riding together. And then when the mountains come, you really see the climbers. They, they separate themselves in a big way. And you're like, wow, they're all phenomenal cyclists. They all been doing so great. But how are these climbers so much different to put that kind of distance between them and the rest of the pack? And I think what this has revealed for me in the last 18 months is that the climbers always have the ability to climb in the face of adversity. And they're proving it now, embracing technology, right? Those, the, the new advances in technology and the reach that they can through social influences. There's, there's some amazing success stories that I think you've kind of seen the same as I have there. Well, and, and that's such a great analogy. And I think part of that begins with a mindset that the top cyclists, they don't dread the mountains. They anticipate them. They're actually looking forward to them. And because they know not only this is what's going to put some space between me and everybody else, I think they thrive on the friction, the adversity. It is very revealing. And it's interesting because I talked to a friend who's not a financial advisor, but he's a client of a financial advisor. And every now and again, he sort of throws out these little subtle barbs about, you know, I don't know if, you know, I really need a financial advisor. This is a guy who basically bought FANG stocks over the course. I mean, we've been on what, a 13 year run. And uh, what's that old saying? Even turkeys can fly in a strong wind. And back to your analogy about the mountain, I think right now, and this is what I said to my friend, I said, your financial advisor is going to be indispensable to you, not just because of what we're heading into, what we've been through, but your needs are going to become so much more complex. Your kids are older. You've got aging parents. Right now, I want you to focus on what your advisor is worth to you, not what he costs, okay? Because you've had some incredible lift. Don't take that for granted. And I see a bit of... Um, complacency, I guess you could say, between 08 and 2021. But the best advisors, I think, as they also had a little bit more mileage to mature, they view this as a calling. And I think sometimes they're taken aback at how much impact and relevance they can have on a family. And you shared with me a story about a financial professional who had a client going through a pretty serious personal episode. And it was profound. It, it, first of all, it confirmed, right? Facts tell, stories sell. It was such an incredible story. But also just about the calling of the financial professional. If you don't mind, I'd love for you to share that story. Yeah, it was, it was a really revealing one again. And like you said, back to that climbing analogy, they look forward and anticipate the mounts because they've trained for them. Advisors that put processes in place early on prior to the pandemic they, they really put distance between them and everybody else because they had done what we had suggested all along. There's two types of pain that everyone experienced in the last 18 months. You either experience the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Now we can look back and say, boy, it'd have been nice if I had my practice a little better positioned 
for for uncertainty. But whether you did or not, it's not too late. The discipline to act to put these things in place will really separate you. And and those clients that need you will find you. And this story that you're talking about, this was just a couple of weeks ago. And it was an interesting one. Uh, we were just talking about referability, advocacy, and, and the like. And I said, why don't you share with me one of your success stories, leveraging the resources and, and the practices that we talk about in the advisor playbook. And he said, Chris, I got to tell one to you. He said, an accountant that we work with, who's not a client, by the way, and that's kind of another story, but very much respects the advisor's business, had a, had a client, the CPA did, that he asked if she would visit with this investment advisor. And uh, the financial advisor says, uh, I'd be happy to visit with her. So he, the accountant sets up the meeting, calls this lady, and this is how the call started. She says, listen, I understand Mr. Brown, the CPA, suggested that we talk. But before we get started, this is what she says, before we get started, I don't really have a need for an investment advisor. That's kind of not where we're at right now. But the CPA suggested we talk, so, so we're having this call. And so now the financial advisor is like, hey, great. Nice lead, Mr. CPA. If we could, if we could get the ones that kind of want me, it would be nice. But he wasn't focused on those that wanted him. That's that's one of these characteristics of these that put that, that distance between them when the client came was he's focused on those that need him. And so he wanted to find out. And this is what he says to her after she says, I don't need an investment advisor. He says, fair enough. He says, uh, why don't you share with me your situation and see if I might be able to direct you to someone who maybe can help. She says, well, my husband just resigned from his job where he's a partner of a law firm. And at this law firm, he was unable because of a, a health condition that he didn't want anyone to know about, found himself forgetting things and uh, unable to perform at the level that he had become accustomed to and, and didn't want the partners to say something to him first. So he go, went ahead and, and put out a letter of resignation. And his wife was just telling the, the advisor, like, I had no idea he was going to resign. I understand why he wanted to. He didn't want to be embarrassed for what was to come down the road. But we can't afford this. We haven't planned for this. We have credit card debt. We've set aside some money, but not enough that I believe we can live the way we want to live. And uh, the financial advisor says, hold on a second. Did he already send this letter to the partners of the law firm? She said, yes. He goes, immediately rescind the letter as quick as you can. She's like, what? He goes, this is a situation where this is a disability that has occurred and you need to treat it as such. Now, because he already sent the letter, this financial advisor worked with that partnership to rescind the letter, refile it as a disability, worked with the insurance company and get this. I don't need a financial, I don't need an investment advisor. It went from that to five months later, a check for $2 million for this lady and her husband. And the kicker, tax-free. So it's not about who wants you, it's who needs you. And the very best, you're identifying and able to find where they're needed. And then able to communicate in such a way that those people will embrace that, that professionalism. So I just, I love, and for every financial advisor listening in, this, it gives me goosebumps wearing a long sleeve shirt, but you can't say, I love being able to tell the those types of stories because without you, 
the financial professional. Folks like that go destitute. I mean, they, they it, it really would have been a different scenario. There's nothing like being able to have that kind of an impact. So it's stories like that that you hear as well that that make me realize that the last 18 months has been more revealing than anything. Okay, that story had the exact same physiological impact on me just now as it did the first time. And I mean, what it confirms is, and I'm sure that advisor is thinking, wow, this is a fulfilling role I play. I don't have to do this. I get to do this. I know you're a big fan of uh, Jim Rohn and he always says, and, and I'll just paraphrase on the context of advice, there are examples and warnings that come from either taking or ignoring advice and valuing advice. And what's interesting about this is as a fee-for-service professional, so somebody who thinks for a living, what you're exceptionally good at is helping a financial professional capture an episode like that and turn it into an intellectual property that can be invested into other relationships. So it's not just about, okay, I've got the goods, I've got the technical ability, I'm really good at what I do. Let me share something with you that you can relate to that would probably have the same impact on a client that it had on, on you and I. I know you've got this packaged in a format and a, and a best practice. Do you want to share how, to, how somebody can, can capture a story and invest it into other relationships? Sure. And it was, this was a result of that packaging. And that's how that advisor shared the story with me was a result of something that was adapted from a good friend of ours who, who wrote a book called uh, how to get your competition fired. His name was Randy Schwantz. And, and he shared this with me and I've tweaked it a little bit to our industry and I've used it with, with very good results among elite advisors, giving a framework for exactly how do I tell an effective story that communicates certain things? What do we want to communicate? We want to communicate that we have capacity. We want to communicate that we're growing. We want to communicate that we have services and solutions that, that they're not aware of. We want to communicate what the results are by having that professional advice and putting it into practice. We want to answer the questions that they don't even know they should be asking. And here's how it starts. SONAR. That's the acronym. S-O-N-A-R. This advisor says to me, Chris, let me share with you and ask here a situation of a family that came referred to us from one of our CPA friends. You see, they were in a situation where he had a, a, an illness and was embarrassed to talk about that illness. So he resigned from his job that he had worked for and worked hard to achieve for decades because he was unable to perform at the level he wanted to. What he wasn't aware of is they're laid in an opportunity. That's the O. The opportunity to reclassify this resignation as something beyond a resignation, but as a disability. What he needed was a financial professional that could uncover that need, understood the law, the implications of, of disability, and was able to engage with both the partnership and the insurance company to put in place a disability claim, which resulted in five months later, $2 million tax-free to the family. 
So that's the situation, that's the, the S. The O was the opportunity that the financial professional uncovered. The N was the need that that financial professional addressed. The A was the action that was taken. And the R is the result. That was $2 million. You can apply this framework anytime you're telling a story. I, I like to encourage financial professionals that when they get into a casual conversation like, like what we had before this launched, right, before the podcast, hey, what have you been up to? What's new? What's the latest? And, oh, I got to share with you. We had the coolest story. This situation happened where we had this family came referred to us from one of our valued partners. He's a CPA. Uh, really good CPA, by the way, but not the point. Let me tell you about this family. So if I just said that sentence alone, I just communicated what? We're growing. We grow by referrals. They come from our outside partners. And I haven't even started the story yet. Of course, I could sit there and say, uh, listen, Duncan, I want to let you know that uh, we're taking on new clients. Uh, we like new clients. We'd appreciate whatever you could do to help us bring in more. That'd be great. I mean, you could go that route, right? <laughs> so I, I just love that. I love that story framework. And I just love to get to hear so many of those good stories from advisors that are using it. Well, and what you're basically forcing advisors to do is to professionalize their interactions and turn them into intellectual properties by giving them that frame and not winging it and getting a client to buy into my sense of purpose as a financial professional. So it's not just that I've got the technical ability. And incidentally, for anybody listening in, we have captured a lot of this in a couple of resources uh, that both Chris and I did that are available through your first trust wholesaler, one of which is called the vein of gold. The other is total client engagement. So if you don't want to reinvent these wheels and you want to stretch yourself a little bit in the, in the spirit of professional contrast, make sure you look for that. And, you know, Chris, at the outset, you, you talked about adapting and you're right. The best are incredibly innovative and not just when there's friction going up the hill. Right. I, I mentioned to you, there's a great YouTube video of a cyclist named Michael Guerra. Four years ago, he was toward the back of the Peloton, the pack cycling, and they crested a hill and started going down. Everybody's pedaling like maniacs. And Michael Guerra decides, you know what? I'm just going to lay down on my seat and go flat out like Superman. He passed everybody, including the pace scooter that was in front of the Peloton. And actually, I just saw that the the, the rider of the lead scooter, he laid out flat too to catch up to the cyclist. <laughs> Effortless, but talk about innovation and somewhat counterintuitive. I'm just going to take some of the friction away. Sonar, and you're right, Randy Schwantz, The Wedge and How to Get Your Competition Fired, incredibly powerful resources. So let's continue on the theme. So very revealing but Chris, also for me, very validating, especially in the distinction between salesmanship and stewardship. I can only imagine how much friction there would be for somebody whose whole approach revolved around products, pricing, and performance, right? The hunter-gatherer out there trying to make a sale in the last 18 months with all the disruptions to the, you know, what was normal. So that for me was incredibly validating. And again, back to your story, how risk management goes hand in glove with wealth management and making sure that the client 
understands the advisor's panoramic and all-encompassing process. Not that they, they, they are just managing wealth. I'm curious, has it validated anything for you? You know, I was thinking, as you were saying, on, on the risk, looking back at those advisors that, that made those adaptations, you know, that was a risk, right? I mean, it's a risk to abandon what it was that was taught in the 80s and 90s, which is ask for the order, right? Uh, always be closing. You know, all of the, the things that produce the salesman that now ranks as the least trusted profession in America, right? I mean, that's what works best for you Tuesday or Thursday. I mean, you still hear that in the industry. So there's a risk to abandon that salesmanship mentality. There's a greater risk not to. And we are looking at those advisors that have understood the risk, just as they communicate to clients that say, oh, investments are too risky. I'm just going to sit in cash. That's an appetite of risk much greater than, than investing, is not investing. The risk of adapting to a strategy that embraces your philosophy, your planning strategies, and your process. Is it risky? Sure but a lot less risky than staying as the salesman that, that will go by the wayside. Here's this one. I didn't even share this with you. Really interesting. You know, through April of this year, Charles Schwab opened 3.2 million new accounts through the first four months of the year. You're like, oh, well, that's good. No, because nothing's good or bad except by comparison. So let me give you something to compare that to. That's more than they did the entire year of 2020. Oh, Chris, those are just small accounts. We're not really competing with those. People have been talking about that for a long time. Yeah, small, it's, they're only 58% larger than the previous year, 58% larger in assets. The growth is staggering for those. And you know what? They've done a really good job embracing technology and getting out their message. So risky, yeah, that's been revealing. Those that want to avoid the risk of doing something different, that's a lot more risky than not. Let's, let's make the adaptations and embrace what it is that's happening in front of us because your competition is, right? Well, you, you use the word avoid. What I've noticed is top professionals have a mindset of plateau avoidance. They don't want to crest. They want to keep climbing. I'll tell you something. I'm sure you noticed this as well. I know you lead a great team of coaches Somebody who I've come to really admire is Jackie Wilkie because I see her activity on LinkedIn. And this is somebody who's not afraid to take a risk and go outside of just a traditional lane of a practice management consultant. She covers a lot of ground, but she's also really skilled at communicating this. Uh, I know in person, but also virtually. So I don't know what brought that out because I know she was always good, but I've seen her really go to another level in the 18 months. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. You know, it's the same thing with Ted and a number of other really good advisors embracing social uh, yeah. networking and, mm -hmm. and, and the new wave of communicating. And she has always been one to quickly adapt. And I would say that that's just a characteristic of, and if you look at, First Trust and Pareto as companies, we were hiring in 2008 mm -hmm. at First Trust. Nobody was hiring in 08. No. Right? What, why would we do that? Well, we're contrarian, but we also have the long view. We're 
we're okay to take that risk. And we're encouraged by Jim Bowen to do it. You know, create that, create that time. One thing that Jim says a lot is there's no difference between someone who can't read and someone who doesn't read. Like if you've got a laptop in front of you, that's got a camera on it and you're not using it, right? There's no difference than, than being out in a, a jungle with, with a, a rotary phone, right? I mean, it, embrace what it is that we have and leverage the ability to grow with these different resources. Have you ever considered launching your own podcast? Not sure how to start? Outsource it to the best in the business. We did. Our trusted partners at Proudmouth have a turnkey process to take care of everything. Add predictability to your marketing efforts. Visit them today at proudmouth.com. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I've gone back to read a couple of books uh, by futurists, Alvin Toffler and John Nesbitt. So Alvin Toffler's book, Future Shock, written in 1970. I just wanted to get a sense for if what he saw in the future actually came to pass. And he talked talked, about... Did he talk talk about the Cubs winning? (laughs) I don't know if he called that one. He did talk, to your point about Jim Bowen, uh, the new illiterate. Not the ability to read or write, but the ability to learn, relearn, or unlearn. So to break some of those patterns. John Nesbitt in uh, Megatrends, 1982, that one really shocked me in terms of the things that he saw coming down the road between then and now. So I encourage people to just sort of, again, in the spirit of investing the past into the future. Those are quite fascinating reads. And there are summaries of those books that can get you right to the core of the message as well. I wanted to talk about a little bit about the future. One adjustment that I've seen top fee-for-service professionals make is further embracing the art and science of future pacing. Getting a client to look past short-term volatility, obstacles, noise, and really focus on the trajectory of where it's all going. Where's the relationship going? Where's the plan taking them? And getting them to buy into the fact that, look, we are so far out in front of your evolving needs. As your life changes, we'll make the adjustments. That's the beauty of having a process. And getting the client to buy into that client experience, getting them detached from that short-term performance issues, among other things. Have you seen adjustments, little tweaks like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that 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 goes to the natural flow from what we saw over the last 18 months, right? They didn't just react to, to what was going on for the pandemic, but identified that this is kind of a new wave, a new thing. New wave. It's the communication has probably been the best, is the most apparent one that I would notice is you know, Kevin Bishop and, and Jackie Wilkie you mentioned earlier, wrote a uh, white paper right. identifying what it was that that future professional, future financial professional would look like. And they use the analogy of stereo and two channel stereo is fantastic. It's all we had forever. Right. And two channel stereo was, was really, really good. And it wasn't until someone heard surround sound that they thought, well, I'm never going to listen to two channel stereo again. 
And two-channel stereo is, is phone calls and emails. It's fine. I mean, it, it's worked. But it's not all of the other multi-channeled approaches to communicating with clients and embracing that and incorporating that surround sound impact of communication is probably, as I look towards the next really 12 months, beyond that, it'll be hard to see. But looking forward to the next 12 months, it'll be those that, that embrace multi-channeled communication because it still remains to be the number one reason right that that people are leaving i don't i don't know if i shared i might have with you i had a really interesting text come to my phone from a former canadian who is now a, a very wealthy individual nine plus figures well into the nine figures and I know him casually, not like we've been to dinner before, but we don't regularly go out. And he's only approached this deep nine-figure net worth after going public recently and articles and forwards and things reference. So I know he's connected, but he knows what I do for a living. He knows that I work with the, the greatest financial professionals in the country, uh, the elite, of, irrespective of the firm. So he sends me this text, and I'll summarize it for you. I should probably pull it up. It's It's... Unbelievable. And I see it's him. I'm like, oh, what's he texting me for? Open up. He goes, listen, I understand you're in the circles of, of top financial professionals. I am going to be letting ours go because of the financial products that they had pitched his less financially sophisticated children. That's how he worded it. He says, we're a complex type family. And then at the end, he goes, we're a pretty large account. I'm like, yeah, I get it, right? That's the kind of, yeah, pretty large count. And I started thinking about that. And I won't mention the firm. They know already. But someone's about to lose on, on around a billion in assets. It really boiled down to that thing that we talk about all the time. And that is that level of communication that and what that, that advisor had done is communicated salesmanship, not stewardship. I mean, to use the word pitch, I mean, it's, it's almost got like an undertone to it, doesn't it? it does. It's like you could tell the disdain that he must have had to even put that into the text pitch. And then to come back with less financially sophisticated. Yeah, my kids, they're in their 20s, but they don't know what they don't know. And for you to, to approach like that, at least they hadn't communicated with the, the big guy what it was that they wanted to do. Now it's gone. It's not salvageable. That relationship has ended. And I believe that's just a microcosm of a mega relationship that is happening all over the place. And I think Charles Schwab has positioned themselves in a really good way to attract some of those. This, they couldn't handle this relationship. I had to refer to somebody else. It's, these are the kind of things that are still happening. And they're having a lot. Well, just yesterday in a consultation, I had to stop, pretty much shake an advisor over the phone because he, on several occasions, used the words pitch book. And I said, it's not a pitch book. It's a playbook. Your value is bought, not sold. You're not trying to convince anybody to do anything. I just want you to professionalize everything you do, standardize it. So it's not the Chris show. It's not the Bill show right? You've actually got a business, not a book of business. You've actually got an enterprise to your point. And this is a team well over a billion AUN themselves. But interesting about communication, one adjustment that I've seen top teams make is not only scheduled 
proactive communication with their clients, but also with their teams. You know, especially with the disruption, everybody was tethered together virtually. Many of our top teams, we said, look, five-minute virtual huddle every day, scheduled same time every day with your entire team. Five minutes. Wins, misses. Just five minutes and then move on every day, same time. Once a week, one hour. World stops. Couple hours, once a month. Half day, every quarter. Full day, once a year. And every single session has the same level of importance as a client meeting, which brings up a really important point. And this has been a recurring theme for me in our consultations. I'm asking advisors, what do you really manage? Now, it's a bit of a trick question, but I'll say, I'll just stop and say, what do you really manage? And they'll, what do you think the knee-jerk reaction is when I say, what do you manage? A billion dollars. <laughs> I manage money. And I said, let's break that down. Yes, you manage money. But you also manage a business and you manage people. Now, the way you manage money, I will never trivialize it. It's really important. It's your core competency. Your technical ability is really key. But it's, again, it's a bit of a minimum requirement. It's, it's commoditized. It's not proprietary. The way you do it is not exclusive to you. So my point is, there have been opportunities now, and we've seen sort of two addressable audiences emerge from this. For some advisors who have plateaued, and it's revealed that they're striving to simplify their lives, regain some liberation and order in their lives, make sure the business serves their life, not the other way around. I've actually said on many occasions recently, maybe you should get out of the asset management business and outsource that to somebody who's really cracked the code and has got scale, liberate yourself to go deeper into managing what's yours, proprietary, manage your business and manage your clients. I mean, I could, we could do a separate podcast just on growing down, simplifying, outsourcing the commoditized. So I know you and I talk about this, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that mindset. You know, probably the same thing with every advisor that's listening to this podcast as you as you describe that, you think of all of the whether it's your own practice or other practices that that would be applicable for. This idea of thinking that we are wealth managers and that's what differentiates us. If you you know you asked earlier, what are the advisors of the future, the fastest growers doing? They are outsourcing. They know that there is no way that they could in their 40 hours a week, if that was all they did, was read K-1s and research reports and follow relative strengths. And if that was all they did, they're still just one person. It's not 30 CFAs that that's, they're not distracted by having to take an inbound phone call. These are people, this is all they do. And so to identify and find the right partner that has a proven track record, it's able to remove emotion from the investment process for you. It can delegate and, and, and customize allocations that they overlook for you. They are managers of managers is what I've noticed. And to, to deal with the minutia of individual holdings. And I know people have been talking about that for a long time and there've been, well, Chris, I'm discretionary. I can do it in a, in a you know, 
much more efficient manner. Look, I can appreciate that. And there are examples of it. Look, I have teams I work with, I'm sure you do, that, that are able to do it. But boy, they're few and far between. And for every one of those, it's, you know, it's almost like talking to somebody that, hey, Bill Gates dropped out of college. I don't need to go to college. Yeah, that's one way to think of it. Yeah, so-and-so manages their own portfolios and they seem to do pretty well. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. Or you could just look at the probabilities. And what are, what are your chances of success if you focus on managing the relationship and delivering an experience that's referable to clients? What, what's that outside opportunity? Once, well, that's risky, Chris. I mean, you know, my clients have grown accustomed to, you know, me pitching ideas rather than positioning a philosophy. Uh, that's risky. Risky to not adapt. And so I would encourage anyone, and this is something you don't have to reinvent the wheel on. We do this all the time. I know that your first trust partners help with this, but if you'd like to see sample of what some of these, these allocations look like that these large teams are using, you don't have to use it, but at least it'll give you an idea like, oh, so that's how they're able to bring in a hundred million net new every year for eight consecutive years. That's what it does. It's not just the premise and, and you break down cause and effect because you're absolutely right. Like of all the things you manage, well, yeah, you manage time. It's finite. If you work 45 hours a week, it's probably 15 managing money, 15 managing your business and 15 managing your clients. What if you outsourced the first 15 and then invested that into the business and the clients, that extra 15 hours? That's where you unlock so much opportunity, not to oversimplify it, but there's a two for one on that too, because it's like four savings because every investment of effort into the business and into the client also contributes to not just the stickiness, but the enterprise value. The enterprise value of a business today versus 18 months ago, the, the multiples, it's ridiculous. But it, it again, back to your analogy about the mountains revealing the climbers. Every business is built to be sold, always working on your business, contributing to your enterprise value. Your enterprise value is not enhanced because solely because of your technical ability. It's because of your approach to practice management and relationship management. But that brings us to the other side of the coin. So you've got this one group who's saying, okay, I, I just want to simplify my life. This last couple of years has been a little rough. I've got about five years left. I want it to really be rewarding and fulfilling. I, I want to be in a zone of contentment and Zen. That's a really meaningful group of people. On the other side, you've got these groups that are like, this is where we win. They're so ambitious and they're like, let's go, let's go deeper. Let's go, let's get more. And what's interesting, and we covered this quite a bit in the vein of gold series, the advisors that are reimagining their business saying, okay, intellectual property. Like I know an advisor in Colorado who is standardizing his entire approach, his way and he's going to monetize that by saying, hey, advisors, what other advisors, why reinvent the wheel? Just do it my way. It's turnkey. It's panoramic. Just add water. That's he's creating another income stream for his business. You have other advisors that are saying, hey, look, you know, get out of this mindset of households and holdings. Adopt my model 
And I will show you how to go deeper into your business and deeper into your client relationships to attract 50 or $100 million a year consistently, another income stream. And then you see the advisors who are going all the way across the spectrum. Now they're completely franchise ready. Their organic business is a proof of concept. It's captured in a playbook that they can put in the hands of somebody else. So they can actually go out and buy a business. And if they buy an $80 million AUM business, when they transition those clients over and elevate them, now it's a $100 million business because of all that dormant opportunity that was just unlooked previously. And they're attracting advisors to draft in behind their process. That to me is so exciting. It's rejuvenating. I know it is for you as well, but it's the next frontier of opportunity in this business. So I'd love your perspective on that as well. That That's good to great, isn't it? I mean, that's really what it is. It, and it's funny how all these principles across all of our, our favorite reads just yeah. continue to present themselves in real life and in real practice. What is a, a valuable enterprise? Well, just ask yourself, if you're listening to the podcast, you didn't show up to work this morning. You just didn't go. And then you didn't go the next day or the next day. Maybe you missed an entire week when you didn't give anybody a heads up. Whatever. You, you, you missed a week. How do you think that looks? when you come back. Now, if your answer isn't, well, seamless. The most effective CEOs are those that make themselves replaceable with process and with a philosophy that permeates among the other members of the team. And you know, the beauty, the side effect of that too is no client wants to be at the mercy of a maverick talent either. Well no said. Client wants, right, no client wants to feel, hey, you're getting up there in age. Things happen. That's you know, such a good point. I mean, yes, I, I know right? we're like broken records where we say to the lead advisor, do you need to be present for your practice to be productive? Yes or no? And very revealing. But I never thought about that, actually, where it was client facing, right? The open kitchen where the client realized, OK, yes, I like the people, but I also like the practice and the process. And it doesn't feel like a handoff if I'm talking to somebody else other than my lead advisor. Right. That's that's actually a very powerful distinction. I've got one last question for you before we wrap up. And I'm just curious about this more than anything, because your wholesaling team is unrivaled. They are among the very best in the industry. I'm curious, what is this last 18 months revealed for them? Or I should say management, Jim, in particular, Bowen, the CEO of our, our firm, really allows a lot of the same principles that we talk about here among, among top teams allows our wholesalers to run their own business and identify and, and add value, irrespective of the times. Why is it that we had our best year ever in a time when we can't meet face-to-face -face in a lot of places around the country? Because the emphasis has always been on the financial professional. And everyone knows it that's listening to this. When was the last time you saw a First Trust commercial or a First Trust stadium sponsorship? What we sponsor is, is the advisor. We're advocates for them and their clients. And we want to provide the resources to make both look good. If we could earn an opportunity, and, and that's as, as humbly as, as you hear it in my voice, I mean it. If we could earn an opportunity to help grow your business, reduce your workload, and enhance the client experience, we'd be, we'd be honored to do that. And we hope we'd have that opportunity. So 
please feel feel more than comfortable to reach out to anyone in your first trust partners and we'll see what we can do to help. Well, and I know that's validated in the quantitative growth of the firm, but I will tell you this, I talk to a lot of advisors and the qualitative feedback I hear from some of the very best in the business about their indispensable relationship with their first trust wholesaler. It's not even close. I don't hear it. It's not even close. I'll just leave it at that. So, Chris, I, you I probably, hey, you should probably mention Duncan because it still surprises me how many people haven't received the advisor playbook, the digital version. We have the Kindle version that's out there that takes a lot of the principles that we talked about that they can also get a copy of that by reaching out to their first trust wholesaler as well. We'd love yeah, to begin with that. Yeah, great point. And also, uh, if you're listening in, if you're not connected with Chris and me on LinkedIn, please look for us because we're very active there. Chris, first of all, I really appreciate you making the time. I know you're a busy guy. You're in quite a lot of uh, demand right now. I want to have you back because I think we're only a couple of months away from maybe having some new things to talk about, including potentially a little bit of Blue Square. I'll just leave it at that. Chris, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Your wisdom is... uh, second to none. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Honor. Thank you, Duncan. Pleasure as always. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit ProudMouth.com to learn more.